Now, if he's got distracted by a squirrel out the window, or, or you know, or the attractiveness of the first violin player, or whatever it happened to be, yeah. if you come and you come in at the wrong point, you come in bar 63, it ruins all yeah. the previous 63 bars, or bar 65. Everybody stops, there's a pause, then you go bam, 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 bam. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Joss. Hello, Joss. Hello. How did you meet me? I met you in, I always have trouble describing it, it's a writing club, but that makes it sound a bit great and chill in some ways, and or LA. Writing group, I suppose. 18 months ago maybe? Yeah, probably. It's been a while. It's been a while. I did a couple of writing courses, or three creative writing courses, which is a longer story, but the last one of which, some of us carried on after that. So, carried on meeting every couple of weeks on a Wednesday, just to make ourselves go and write and give ourselves deadlines, and critical feedback, and so on. And from that, come the connection now, but one of us knew uh, Angela knew me through work. work. Yeah. And so I brought me and, uh, and, and Jen and came along, and then, that's been good. It keeps me right. Well, up until that last six weeks, it's kept me writing. Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because it has been quite a while, but we see each other every sort of two weeks. And then some, if you miss one as well, it's a month. Yeah, it's a month. So it's kind yeah. of a flick book yeah, it is. acquaintanceship. Yeah, it is. It is. Friendship. It is, yeah. What do you do now? I co-own a small technology PR agency that works in the television sector, broadcast industry. So... Our role in life, work life, is to help our clients, and they are people who supply services and or products, to make television work and film work. So anything in that, from start to finish in the film and TV production line, our clients at various stages will get involved with, depending on who those clients happen to be at any given moment. What do you actually well, do? We help them promote themselves to the industry, to their potential oh, customers. Okay. So anything that they do, I hate the phrase, but anything they do that's customer facing, we would get involved with our fundamental skills of writing. So we do press liaison on stuff. So we write features and case studies and press releases about that company's activities. Okay. Um, we have a range of, we've got seven full-time clients at the moment and a range of occasional clients. Um, because a lot of their technologists we're not technologists, though we have an understanding of the, of the issues in the industry, so we help them write themselves, basically. Feature white papers, I, I present papers for one client around the world at conferences. We're too small as a company to work with the really big players, and the big players in our industry can be three or four billion turnover companies. The television industry is actually quite small, quite niche. It won't be for much longer because of the nature of videos changing. Shipping around live video, frame syncs to audio, so it's frame accurate around the world. HD quality or SD, you know, high definition or standard, is a very difficult thing to do. Standard IT technologies can't handle that. So Microsoft and Apple have tried over the years to get involved. They are beginning to do so now. But also the same thing that's happened in, in audio in the last 10 or 15 years, where audio has become much more commoditised, i.e., you used to have to go out and buy loads of hardware equipment, which I had, big black boxes to make stuff work. Yeah. Now you go and buy a PC down the road and you get your software in whichever way you happen to get your exactly. software. Yeah. So for what would have cost you 20 grand you know, 15 years ago, now probably cost you 2 grand or even less than that to do it. So the same thing's happening in video. So in the video industry or the television industry, it's becoming easier to make television? Not easy to make television. One of the trends that's happened recently is digital SLR cameras now shoot high quality HD 
video. And on some films, they're actually because of the way they shoot the focal length of static cameras, they shoot in a particular way to so get particular depth of field out. There's one episode I think of ER, then right, they shot all on digital SLR camera. They're massively high quality. You can they, they can fill the cinema screen at that resolution, or you can buy an HD camera for 500 quid or 600 quid, which would have cost you 50 grand, you know, ten years ago. So. And what I mean by commoditization is it brings video now. You can also the compression technologies are much better. So what was required massive amounts of bandwidth to ship around now doesn't. So as bandwidth increases and video decreases in size, that you've got that sort of inverse relationship going on. So video has become cheaper, basically. So companies outside the pure television industry have sprung up, and I mean by that YouTube, Hulu, Netflix, whatever they happen to be streaming media stuff but that also applies in corporate sector oil industry or, or banking or whatever they can now shoot corporate videos and ship them around right for, for, for very little money having said that i would argue that the same thing the danger of happening in video as has happened in music in video we call it user-generated content we call youtube stuff user-generated content everybody knows. A lot of the music that's out there is actually just user-generated content. I wouldn't actually go so far as to call it music, but just because people are empowered to create doesn't make them creative. Okay, so hang on. So, what, what, why isn't it? Why isn't this user-generated content? Why isn't that? Oh no, music? some of it is. Yeah, no, some of it. No, no, so the good some, stuff is the music. Oh, it does, and it opens up the world to, particularly the world of electronica massively so because it, 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 I mean, it, 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 in lots of ways it gets rid of the record label you know the smaller record labels can't survive because they're just distribution mechanisms now and you don't you don't need them to distribute you can do that all yourself no you can I mean that's what this this podcast is yeah. kind of circumventing so but the, but the problem is, is, is and I think it's a greater problem that we have generally at the moment is if you empower everybody to create or those who want to it makes finding the good stuff much more difficult. Searching for stuff online is becoming a real problem. So, well, what the new, I think, what the new media industries will be increasingly is filters. Metadata. Now we use the BBC, but in the future we'll have somebody else that we'll trust to go through all of the internet content and give us the good quality television or the good quality. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think the big brands, I don't really like the term brands, but you're right, they are as, as trusted in an online and, and pull universe as they are in a push universe, because the metadata is not good enough to make everything as searchable as you want it to be. Television is fundamentally a lean back experience, yeah. it's not a lean forward experience. One of our clients, for example, now they supply backpack, you touch any camera you want for it, any HD or SD, they can shoot HD footage, they can stream it live via 3, 3G or 4G mobile networks or Wi-Fi or WiMAX because they've got multiple modems in the backpack and they that can stream straight to the internet or into a broadcast studio and out live onto TV. That's why 3G. Even right. if your Apple, Apple iPhone or whatever phone you've got won't get 3G connectivity this year. And that's HD video over 3G. So it's so it's just a backpack that can shoot live TV. Yeah, to beam it up. Don't need satellite, all done by cellular network. What that means is that it brings even live video into a whole new world before you'd need satellites to do right. that. So it's cheaper and it's faster. Any broadcast will pick up a backpack, put a patch of camera, look up the street and off they go. Yeah. That's it. And they use a mobile phone style contract. For a company like that, although their initial sales are into the broadcast sector, you've got potential for weddings, for example. Yeah. A family over one side of the ocean can't get to the wedding. You could set that camera up on a tripod and film it live, stream it, create your website. 
That's and, it, and are those the kind of people that you sort of represent then? We do a company that does makes colour grading technology. Any film has to be colour graded. Okay. And TV is colour high level. It's colour graded. Yeah. What, so you have to sort of white. They have that white. You have to white balance. White balance. Yeah, that's right. And it gets very good. High grade colour. It's a very skilled. Film is still used for, for, for some cinema. Yeah. But increasingly, the and something I shot in Michael Mann's probably famous proponent, most famous proponent of digital shooting on digital all the way through. But even if you shoot on film, you can then use a digital post-production workflow to do your effects and do do your colour grading and all that sort of stuff. But we see the same, exactly the same in that sector. Is that what used to cost you what used to be a big massive machine that cost 250, 300, 400 grand or whatever, and now you can buy the pared down version of software and run it on a high level PC. My dad worked in the documentary film industry for the coal board and they shot on film down coal mines which is a crazy thing to do actually when you think of health and safety now I mean it was dangerous enough down the coal mines without taking down the the film he always sort of says that you know that there's a different thing in terms of because he shoots digitally now there's a different thing in terms of you used to physically make a cut and and you'll find this in music because I'll I'll, we'll get onto this later but you make music as well and when I first started making music it was a it was a tape we we had a four track and you you know you were cutting you, and, and now it's very different how you it changes how you make music and it changes how you make film I don't think it's worse or better it's just different you know, but it's I think the problem I have with digital and, 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 this, and, and I'll give an example of, of digital transmission i.e. We're, we're now seeing analogue signals switched off in the UK and we've seen that in various parts of the world it's happened in the US for example yeah um, that doesn't mean the days of the area have gone it just means it's Governments want to resell analog spectrum so they can sell it to the military or mobile phone companies or whatever. Digital allows more channels in less frequency, and we only have a certain amount of frequency in which to broadcast. Analog, even an analog TV signal, it fades off slowly. Yeah. Digital works or it doesn't. It just blocks. You don't. You can't. You either get a picture or you don't get a picture. Yeah. That's it. And, I, and, and to get back to the point, the, 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 uh, and it happens in music as well. Digital clipping, as you know, is horrible. Digital distortion is horrible. Yeah. Analog distortion is lovely because it adds warmth and you can use it as an effect in your music. Tape saturation. Probably. Yeah, that's yeah. But digital, digital, the problem with digital is it takes away the happy accident too much. I make all my music now on a computer. And it's either within the correct parameters or it's not. And if it's not within the correct parameters, then it's just it's digital distortion. You can't listen to it. It's clicks and it pops and it's horrible. There are effects now coming back in. So lots of people now, for example, they will still master our analog outboard technology yeah. to give that warmth back to it. Yeah. And that's becoming more prevalent actually at the moment. And you can get some really good plugins, you know, software effects to do that. But I think that's really important. I think everybody piles into digital initially, then what you see, you've seen a bit of music is people slightly pull back from that to warmth and humanity back into things so I think it's a good thing so you've taken advantage of digital workflows but with a, with, a, with an overall sonic sound with an overall soundscape that has that slight analogue sound to it I think that's, that's the happy for me that's the happy medium. well I think that's I mean I, I know what you mean I mean I, I do think you do still have in different ways happy accidents with digital I mean I've certainly had lots of happy accidents when editing things where things have just I've done something by accident and it's been great but I know exactly what you mean if you don't record correctly then you haven't recorded correctly there's not very much you can do if if it's too loud anyway if it's too quiet you can although you know I mean that's often a problem as well if you increase a a quiet signal you increase everything else in the room etc etc there is a trend now and it's an important trend I think 
of making music and film and things like that a little bit more human again because we've gone so so far I mean I like auto-tune right I do like it in its place when it's done obviously and used as a kind of a different instrument but when a voice is really subtly auto-tuned it doesn't sound human do you know what I mean and it doesn't sound like a robot if it sounds like a robot I am cool with it but if it, if it sounds like a fake human that's the problem that, that, no I completely agree I, th I think the danger is a lot of people went down the route of certainly in the early days of sampling of making acoustic music electronically which to my mind is just a ridiculous thing to do because it sounds like acoustic music made electronically a lot of the time some of the electronic stuff out there is absolutely brilliant at the moment it's because people step back and they're actually building mistakes and, and field recording stuff back into their music to give it that narrative, right? Um, and, and I think that's... Don't get me wrong, I do agree with you on the editing side of it. You do get... When you're using loops and samples and, and reversing and cutting up and stuff, you do get happy out that way. I, I do agree, but... I think a lot of the music that I've heard... Uh, I'm going to sound like an old, moany old man now, but a lot of the music I hear is that, A, you've got the loudness war, so everything's pumped up for maximum volume level, so there's very little flexibility there. There's very little space left in the mix. Yeah. A lot of modern pop music, to me, it's just, it is noise, and I don't mean that in the sense that I don't necessarily like melodies, just the way that it's produced, it's produced that maximum impact, and it's tiring for the ears to listen to. It's physically tiring. Uh, but Radio 1 has, I think they're allowed half a dB for non-techies, that's a tiny amount of, of, of variation in the overall output across a whole day. So the compression is so much that a lot of the stuff that you put into the music gets buggered up by yeah, the absolutely. output. But if you look at how things were mastered in the 70s and how things are mastered now, when I did my solo album I got my friend to, to master it for yeah. me and we sort of were talking about it and, it and he was like, well I just, I just don't want to master like yeah. like they do now find a good record and, and tell me which what it is and I'll master like that because when people mastered in the past it, it, there were some benefits to making things subtler to having highs and quiets and, 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 and loudnesses and in fact I think that some of the ways that people mastered things before made loudness better I like noisy music yeah. but it has to be it has to be done done right that said, I mean, I'm, 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 I am one of these kind of slight pariahs in the music uh, in music circles where I do like a lot of modern R&B sort of production. Oh, no, don't get, don't get me and a lot of people don't like it. When it's used well, I, I, I mean, you know, what Aphex Twin did with Window Liquor, for example, or uh, and you're right, a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of modern R&B stuff is incredibly well done because it takes. It makes ah, use of the form and, and mechanics, i.e. it makes use of the digital instrumentation. Yeah, that's right. And it uses that to create things that simply wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. You know, that, that, that's very true. But you're always going to get pioneers who use things brilliantly, and then you get all the people that follow the thing. I think the digital production, and, and, and the, simply the cost-effectiveness of it, cheapness in lots of ways, allows too many people to, to, to be bad copyists. Well, that's why, and I don't like how it's gone across every genre as well. I, I like it I like it on R&B, but I don't like the fact that every kind of music sounds like it's produced exactly the, the same, same way. Yeah, it it's, like, it's like they obviously go to the same studio, and then the, the guy just does exactly the same thing, and it, there's no idea of like, well, what, what is this music? How does it need to sound? And they're not sort of doing all that working it out. So I believe you're a trained musician. I'm useless at remembering when things happened or what age I was, so I'm going to go for about seven or eight. Um, when my parents said, my mother actually said, it, oh, my father's backing up, that I was going to learn a musical instrument. To which my response was, no, I'm not. 
having lost that battle, I then lost the war, and it's going to be either violin or piano, that was the options. I started learning the piano, and I, ha I hate it at first, but you know, when you're that age, it's just it's more homework, basically. You know, that's what it is, you have to practice and stuff. But then, at some point, and again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I can't remember. I'm like nine or ten, about that age. I went to my mother took me to music schools at weekend. When I say music school, it's a big ramshackle house, a massive house, fifteen or twenty rooms in Lewis, near Brighton, and it was on for three or four hours in the morning, and we would. We split into different groups, and we'd, we'd write our own tunes, and, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't. That wasn't. There was no. There was, there was theory of music in it, but it was really about banging things until they made a nice sound. It was. It was quite loosely structured, but actually, I think quite dynamic in the way that I think it's very carefully planned out. And I was quite good at it. No, that sounds egotistical, but I was quite good at it. It just came naturally. So I got up to grade five, and then started doing grade eight stuff. But I, by that stage, I didn't really. The, the theory of it was too. I wasn't really interested in the theory of it. It becomes too mathematical. Yeah. Also, I started. I found cigarettes found as well, which was <laughs> But I learned the piano, and at the end of music school each Saturday, so for the last half or three quarters of an hour, we go into the big room, and it'd be an orchestra. We'd form an orchestra, we'd play, which which always sounds like a thousand cats dying. But they didn't do many piano concertos. No, in fact. So my piano playing skills were not really required. So I was the percussionist, okay. no, which was timpani drums drums which you had to retune during various pieces which I never I didn't have a tuning fork or anything so I just randomly tuned them to another note and of course kettle drums only come in normally every 32 or 64 bars a big crescendo but that means you've got to count for 64 bars <laughs> now if you've got distracted by a squirrel out the window or, or you know or the attractiveness of the first violin player or whatever it happened to be yeah. if you come and you come in at the wrong point you come in bar 63 it ruins all yeah. the previous 63 bars or bar 65 everybody stops there's a pause then you go bam 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 but I also had the triangle to play and the symbols but anyway I got, I got annoyed with that after a while so I decided to learn flute Flute wasn't first choice, masculine instrument that it is. I actually wanted to learn the oboe, but at the age of, I'm going to pick another figure, nine or ten, I had a bike accident, cycling, and I fell off the bike and smashed my two front teeth out. And because by the time they'd operated and taken nerves out and stuff, they were so short that they couldn't cap them because they just keep falling off. Yeah. And you can't have crowns when you're growing up because your mouth grows so fast that they just, you, you just have to recrown them. So I didn't have front teeth from the age of 10 to about 16, 17. Um, but of course, what's the key thing that you need to play the oboe? Like teeth. Front teeth, yeah, because yeah, you have to bite on the reed. I don't know why the music teacher didn't tell me before the oboe woman came round to, to, to like a trial with six or seven other people in the room what, that, that I wasn't really suitable. There were six to seven people in six the seven, room. No, six or seven other people. Oh, so six we, or seven. I've lost track of how schools work these days. But then you used to have a spy teacher, a school music teacher would go around the various schools in the area and you'd get her on a Wednesday or a Thursday or whatever each week. And so, and she came, she was an oboe teacher, I think she did various bits of woodwind, and she'd come round and you'd try it out and see whether you're going to be dedicated or, and or whatever. But you couldn't play the oboe. I couldn't play the oboe. So you played the flute. I played the flute, which I didn't really like the flute, to be honest. I don't know why I chose the flute. I just decided to play the flute and kept And then eventually you sort of moved into electronica, I guess, which is a logical place. To end up if you start off in the kind of classical area yeah. and you discover cigarettes and alcohol. Yeah, it is. Um, 
for my sins, me, my, my mate Dan, we listened to a lot of electronic music when we were growing up. We, we should say that we were really into craft work, but actually it was Jean-Michel Jarre. But we listened to Tangerine Dream, because we I was born in 71, so electronic music really started taking off in the mid-70s. I mean, people think it's actually happened a lot earlier than people think, but even earlier than that. But then you have people like Brian Eno, um, but we got the sort of, you know, the Human League and stuff. We were, we, yeah. we were old enough to, to pick up on that. So, I think it's like the last great generation of music in some ways. Yeah, it, feel, it feels yeah. like to me, but then I'm looking back as well. No, I think, I think in lots of ways it was a completely new genre of music. It just it was. It took, actually, I would, I would say that, that, that Chicago and more Detro Detroit house was as yeah, well. Yeah, that's very true. It really, really, they really pushed boundaries. And I think, I think a lot of that's just bad to luck in some ways. And, and you ordered it to a certain extent with Blue Monday. The, you know, and the keyboards are very basic, but they had a very specific sound to them. And each a lot of them were mono camera, i.e. one note at a time. So, but they all had a very unique sound to them. And you listen to those early electronic records, of, of, I mean pop electronic records, of, of Human League, etc., and even the work that Trevor Horn did, the Frankfurt Hollywood stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, some good stuff. Uh, and ABC and, and Mexican Love and, and Yazoo, Vince Clark, what he did in early Depeche Mode. And then you've got a lot more of the Sheffield stuff, a lot more of the left field stuff as well. But you, you then listen to a lot of stuff around 2000, 2005 in that period of, of Electro, and they were basically aping. Well, I've been down well, yeah, particularly actually Vince Clark, I think, is really electro electrotechnics. Not so much structure stuff, but the sounds. Yeah, and people went back and dug out their own analog synths to get that sound, because it's very, very hard to create. It's easier now, because you need a lot of actual processing to emulate old analog synths digitally. I like old, cheap, yeah. shoddy, interesting synths, definitely. Your parents are writers, is that right? Or uh, children's my, writers? My mother is... My parents have done many things. Right. My mother and my father, yes, my mother is a children's book writer, again, amongst other things. My father, he went to Melbourne, to art college in Melbourne, having grown up in Tasmania, small town, Australia, and he did a fine art degree. He's a painter. He was, was fairly successful in, in, successful in New Zealand, and to certainly certain in Australia, prior to coming to the UK. You say you grew up in... I was born in New Zealand. New Zealand. My parents actually met on the boat on the way to the UK, which was a three-week trip. My mother's a Kiwi. And they travelled around Europe and stuff. They actually got married in the UK at one of the registry office. Then went back to New Zealand. And my sister and I were born in New Zealand, but I was about three and a half when I here. Okay, so, you so I grew up in. My sister has really no affiliation with New Zealand, but I, but I do. I spent quite a lot of time up in New Zealand. I love, I love New Zealand for its landscape and its surf and its ability to just disappear in New Zealand. If you want to, you know. It's a beautiful place. I'd love to go. It seems to have every single kind of landscape you could possibly like. It's a very. This, this, this may or may not be true. Lots of things that I say are, but it, I, I believe it's, it's geologically very young. So it's still a very, a very evolving landscape. And you're absolutely right, particularly the west coast of the South Island is something that everybody should see in their lives. I mean, there's one particular vista I was travelling there with a friend 10, 12 years ago now. I came around the corner, and on the right, there's surf beach, for, as far as you can see, and then a headland at the end of it. A big five miles of surf beach, sand, etc. The road, and you've got kind of almost like an escarpment with a river coming down it, then the mountains, and then the glacier, all in the same view. 
and just it's that sort of thing that Julian does very well. But yeah, to get back to my parents, my father when he came to the UK obviously had to earn money to you know they were coming to the UK in the, in the mid seventies and declaring yourself an abstract expressionist painter. Here we go, you know, not not that much money in doing that. So he trained as a graphic designer stuff in the days before computers and, and book design and all that sort of stuff and book layout. But I used to lay out books for my father, cheap series, not cheap series, but series books, very simple textbooks and stuff. You do it with lecture set and a ruler and size photographs manually, you know. And he made really good money out of it. My, uh, 1976, we were on Beachy Head, the cliff down in Sussex. At that point, there was a, there was a nearby lighthouse. And I was there with my mother and my father and my sister and a family friend. Was there from New Zealand, and I said to my father, I just said, now what's because there's a wire running from the cliff to the lighthouse. And I said, What's the wire? And my father said, Without thinking, oh, that's to get the lighthouse keeper his lunch, put in a basket, you know, like a flying fox, and send it down. And apparently, my parents have been, have been sort of toying with the idea of writing children, but for a while, and my the guy, the family friend who was there, said that's a really good idea for children's book. So my mother wrote it, my father illustrated it. They went around, I don't know, 20... Lighthousekeeper's lunch. lunch. I know, I've, I know that book. That's yeah. a very strange... Because I, I, obviously I work with children and children's books. and I, I mean, I've not actually read that book to the, the age group that I um, work with, but I've seen it. I should actually. It probably it's on, I think it's on the National Library, National Book or whatever it's called. Yeah, there's about 13 It's very popular in the libraries I've worked in. Lots of children have taken it out. It's still in print now, 35 years later. So yes, it's done both. Only when the classic thing went round, I don't know, 25, 30 publishers or whatever else in And finally one took it actually. I think it was on Christmas Eve. So my dad painted the garage door when my mother came home. Yeah, the lighthouse stuff. Andre Deutsch, as it was, and the publishers have taken it. I think they've done something like 30, 35 books. So, did your mum write it and your dad illustrate it? Yeah, that's my mother has since, more in recent years, she's written slightly older fiction, not more in the sort of six, seven, eight, nine year old, which my father hasn't illustrated, other people illustrated that. Uh, but my father's also illustrated for other people. So, you had okay money growing up? Well, you. There's not as much money in children's book publishing. No, no, I'm absolutely they not. Wouldn't, they wouldn't, I agree with you. We I mean, wouldn't have been able to survive on a family of four on the book revenues. Alone. I mean, it changed a bit when, when public lending rights came in. So every time a book's taken out of a library, yeah. you get an percentage. But really, I, I, I mean, I'm talking at the top of my head, but I think probably only the top... Two or three percent of authors, I think. Would, oh, would absolutely! So I mean, I was never, never meaning to suggest no, 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 that, uh, no, no, no. that writers get money. Yeah, we did. We did. We, we did. We had. We, yes, we had a. We, I had a lovely childhood. I had a very. I grew up in a small, bit Hamlet. I think technically, because it didn't have a. It had a church, but not a pub or a shop. So I think that's definitely Hamlet. Yeah, but the thing is, it's a strange thing to hear this, really, because. One thing, I mean, having read your writing and knowing you the way you come across when you meet you in a pub, you know, you wouldn't think, you'd think you were a city, South London guy all your life and, the, you know, you're, like you say, cigarettes and alcohol and, 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 and dirty streets, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's top, no, I grew up in the... From the age of, of we, we we lived in London briefly when we first got here, but we lived in Barnes. 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 I, don't, we, I know someone who lives in Barnes. It's quite well to do. Air. It is. It is. Yeah. It was, I remember then <laughs> with the railway line right. This is my parents. This is my. This is me quoting my parents rather than me. Although I remember, I can I can picture the place in my mind. We were right underneath the Heathrow flight path, and there was a train line right behind the house. So if you were on the phone, my mum said you had normally had about thirty seconds, maybe a minute, to have a conversation, and then you couldn't hear anything at all, and then 
you have to wait 30 seconds and then talk again. We weren't there for very long. I mean, a year maybe, eight months, a year, something like that in London. And then we went to Sussex and we rented a place. But it, I mean, the place we rented was a massive house, but it had a big pond in the garden, woods at the back. And really, that, yeah, then we moved for another place in Sussex, not far down the road. Yeah, and I grew up, it was, it was the countryside, and I loved the country. My sister did she went to we went to different secondary we went to different primary schools for a bit, we did different secondary schools. She went to secondary school in a town and I, I went to one in the countryside. And oh, I loved it. I loved cycling around and fishing. I was crap at fishing. And yeah, I loved it. And, and I would I would struggle if if ever I had children, uh, then I would I would struggle to bring them up in London. I, I can understand I mean, any major town. Any city. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I just, I loved it. I loved it, mate. I loved going on the countryside. It's not something I'd do by myself because I think the danger is I'd just disappear into the middle of nowhere and never be seen again in a nice way. I, if somebody else said to me, if I met someone, they said, let's go move to the countryside, I'd really like to do that. I wouldn't argue with that. So you're the child of writers, musicians, kind of artists, that sort of stuff. My dad is that way inclined as well. He's a writer. My dad actually had a, a children's book published once, we had a book published for nippers. I do remember those books at school. It was always weird because they would be in school and one you know, that one would someone would get it and they'd be like, that's the same name as your that's the same name as your dad. I do I do know it anyway, yes. But but most of the stuff that he does is is adult stuff. And I guess one of the reasons that I'm a writer is because he's a writer. And I assume it's a kind of similar thing for you. Yeah. My best mate Dad, he wanted to be an accountant. And lots of people do, they have a very clear idea because that's what their parents did. They were vocational, they, they had career paths. They, you know, you started as a, as a junior and you worked your way up to the, to the boardroom or whatever, where you, you know, Michael J. Fox style. That was never something that was discussed in the house. No. I think Malcolm Gladwell, the psychologist and writer, makes the point in one of his essays I don't agree with everything Malcolm Gabbard is a lot of stuff I really like so it allows us to look at the world in the way that we actually look at it rather than the way that we think we look at it but he wrote an essay about how strong the cultural imperative is in, in families and, and generations it actually goes generations back even though you'd think it'd be diluted by the time it reaches your generation it isn't and he uses the Appalachian Mountains in the US as a prime example of that and their influence and the way they, they, they operate eye for an eye tooth for tooth and all that stuff they could, they're, they're probably 200 years from their original, they're descended 200 years, but still their, their fundamental cultural imperatives are the same as they were 200 years ago. Okay. Though I was brought up fundamentally in the UK and I sound English, in lots of ways I am English, and I was educated in an English way and all of that. My family's not, and it goes all the way back, it's, it's out of the deal, you know, right for, for 200 years, I'm, I'm both Australian and New Zealand. And that influence, however much you think it might be diluted, even though I'm one generation away from it, it, is, it doesn't seem to be. And I think. They grew up in small town. My, 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 my mother was like she daughter of a farmer. They flew in the Second World War. Navigator. My father's father was a, a brick factory. Thing. There wasn't that cultural imperative. Same thing. Not buying a house wasn't a cultural imperative in our family. It's never been a, something that I think about. Whereas in, in England, for example, it is that cultural imperative to buy a yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's quite. I find that quite interesting. But yes, my family was never. I don't get me wrong. There are times when I look back. The one thing that I regret in life is going to university at the stage that I did. What was that stage? What, what? I was. I travelled for a year. Well, I, I worked for six, eight months 
worked, I worked all the way through, most of the way through secondary school, it must have sounded like I was down the mines with a canary, and, you know. Um, but you worked. Yeah, I worked part-time you worked jobs. So you yeah, yeah, beer and stuff. But I was, quite, I was always quite good with money. And I decided, I don't know, and I got a birthday, my 18th birthday present from my grandmother, who was in New Zealand, was, a, was around the world, air ticket. Um, wow. Yeah, which certainly helped matters. But the rest of the money I saved up. Worked for about, about six months, five months now. But I'd saved up a load of money before that, and then just took that money and went off to Australia and New Zealand and, and the US and Canada. I didn't do Asia in that class, which become much more popular. But I was only 18 when I went off. I was quite young in my head. You know, yeah. and, and, and not only that, I, I, I got up my A levels, which lots of people do. I either should have resat them, or I should have pursued the music thing vocationally more. Just got to work in a recording studio, done, you know, done, or done an apprenticeship or something like that, giving it a go. I don't blame my parents for it at all, but, but I was, they, they, there was never there was never any hindrance from them, or, 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 or they prevent me from doing it. But nor was there a big push to do it either. And, you know, laissez-faire works two ways. My degree was rubbish, basically. I mean, it, yeah, it taught me how to study a bit. Where did you go? It was Thames Poly, but it became Greenwich University while we were there. So it was at the bottom rung of the ladder. I really enjoyed university, and I enjoyed. I loved being in London because that was. 1990. Cinemas during the afternoon, there were a quid. Rave scene going on. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't take any chemicals until much later, until I was about 25, 26. Oh, right. I smoked a bit of weed, but I didn't, nothing else. I drank a The first time I was in the city, being in a big city, cinemas were a quid in the afternoon. Jumped the train, never had to pay for it, no barriers or anything. You could go to screen on the green and watch. I remember watching Goodfellas by myself. And I'd go off round to the art house cinemas, Renoir and so on. And I loved it. A previous creative writing teacher. An author, but a novelist, but creative writing teacher said this. That, and I think it's quite a famous thing is that if you want to create, take a muck job. If you get into any kind of career based path, you know, you will gradually get sucked into that. And that's, that's kind of what happened to me because you start earning a bit of money and you want to earn a bit more and, you, and you've got your peers around you and you just get drawn into it. And, and Although the industry that you have ended up in is still within the creative yes, it is sphere. To, it, it, it is to an extent. But do you think in some ways do you find it a bit painful being in a, an arty kind of, you, you see all this arty stuff going on but you're... You're using your because you're actually doing copywriting, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah. you're writing, but you're not yeah, so, doing your own writing. I mean, that sounds like a uncomfortable. No, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, you, no one, no one would describe my career trajectories as, as linear, right? Um, or planned. Very little I do is planned. It used to frustrate me more than it did because. I think when you, when you first come out of university or you first start working and you go into the wider world, you, you have this sort of notion, I think a lot of people do, that you know, at some point everything's suddenly going to make sense and X will mark the spot and you find X and everything, the penny drops and you'll get to the same level as everybody else because all these adults, they all know stuff. Yeah. Then you realise after a while, really, mo- people don't no one really knows know, no one anything. knows anything. They don't, they're just, people are trained to know stuff in certain fields and, 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 and they've learned stuff. But actually knowing stuff is a very different thing. And you most, the, the older you get, the more you realise that the best thing that you can be in life is a human being and, and respond to other people in a humane and humane manner. That's the best thing. Well, it doesn't matter what field you're in. And the problem, the problem that I have with, with the world of business is that once you get to a certain level, and it's more prevalent in certain sectors, you get to a certain level, being a human is counterproductive. If you want to succeed, yeah, you get to that point, and my life at the moment probably is on that border. I would say, having said that, I'd flip it around as well. When you start edging into the upper middle parts of businesses, 
The business itself is fascinating in the way that it works. I mean, it is fascinating. But, but it is also terrifying because, as I say, you just realise that people, a lot of people, they don't, they don't know what they're doing. And no idea. X doesn't mark the spot. Uh, my, my, my mother, we were standing on London Bridge platform, overland platform, probably about six, seven years ago in the rush hour, I don't know where we'd been, been meal or something. My mother said, looked around, she said, one day, I'll know as much as all these other computers. She was like 62 years old at that point. I was like, head in my hands, thinking, we never get there, do you? You just don't, you don't. And once you let go of that. My dad's 87, and his most recent book is called Nobody Knows. So <laughs> he hasn't worked it out. And I, and I think once you accept that. Or at least maybe he has worked it out. That's, maybe that's the thing. Absolutely, Dave. And I think that's absolutely true. Once, for whatever reason, I can't even really pinpoint that. Once you accept. And part of that is, and it's a key thing that you, you, a, you stop comparing yourself to other people. When you compare your lives to other people, the human instinct is to compare themselves in a negative way. Yeah. That person's got more, they're better off, their relationships are better, they've got more money, they've got more house, they've got more stuff, they do better things, they whole blah, blah, So stop comparing yourself. But once you let go of that, and I don't, it sounds like a slightly hippie thing to say, I, I suppose it is, but it just happened naturally to me, then a lot of the stress and anxiety just goes away and you just get on with what you do. You do the best of your ability. If you don't want to do it anymore, it's not life or death. Yeah. Go and do something else. I'm lucky in the. I have other things to fall back on. Not, I, I don't mean materially so much, but but psychologically, I have music and, and writing to fall back That's on. That's right. And, and and I will always have that. And regardless of whether it's any good or not, I don't really care whether it's any good or not. That's not really the point of it. It's nice if other people think it's good. It's great, but it's, it's more. It's nicer if people get affected by it in, in some way. But it's my outlet. It's my when I go make music, I'm off in that world of making music. I'm not thinking about. You do music and you do writing. I do music and I do writing, but my way into music is lyrics. And so the reason I've learned about music and the reason I've I think I've got a kind of musical sensibility, but it's all to do with melody and lyrics primarily, and that's how I come into it. And everything else, like the textures of the music, that's to highlight those and bring out the themes of those. I mean, I'm very much a, a writer when I do music. But you work in electronica, which is, uh, and is, is, is it mostly instrumental as well? Yes, the vast majority of it is. Although I use a lot, of, uh, recently I've been using a lot more sort of found sound stuff. There are some websites out there, field recording based stuff, because it adds a great tonality. So how does that writing, how does the writing fit with that? I mean, do they come from the same place? Or? You mean the writing and writing, writing? The novel that you're writing, that you're submitting it's very to our group? I, th I think artistically they're very different. different. I used to, when I was writing music, I used to write almost complete songs. Complete, I've written quite a lot of pop songs in my time. Right? Yeah. And then I would mess them all up with sounds and break them up and blah, blah, blah. blah. But actually I found in the last couple of years that my music is, is more effective but if I don't write so little snippets or a little chord change work, and do it the other way build the textures and stuff first yeah. and work that way around if you've written a song you, you become too loath to break it down too much even though you think you have you become, and that dictates the tonality of what you're doing so going back to the writing, the writing yeah I think that comes from the writing I find harder um, I don't actually work quite if I'm writing really easy but I think it's because there is an unconscious relationship between writing for work and writing for pleasure and I think that yeah, I've got I'm planning to take next week off and I just go, I've got I just do a lot of cycling and stuff but also write as well just, just take my computer somewhere else and just write well I'm very impressed by the fact that you can write for work and then come home and write I mean 
that's that's quite a hard skill I think I find it I, I find it easier now that I used to work in libraries so I used to be on a computer all day and then coming home and working on a computer all night was very hard now I'm out and about I've got a ukulele I'm you know I'm not working on the computer screen and so when I come home I mean I do spend all of my evenings online doing things writing not so much at the moment editing sound at the moment but I promise I'll get some writing and bring it into writing group soon but you're doing that you're not just having a computer all day you're writing the technical tools are the same for copywriting as they are for writing a novel so how do you find that fits like do, do you find it hard to I think uh, my mother's very good at helping in that regard and, and some of the creative writing courses are as, as well I have to say they were more helpful than I thought they would be I think if you're going to write and this is the golden rule when you're doing work writing I'm very aware of word count points I've got to get across it's more structured unconsciously it is more structured it has to be and often you're taking very dense subjects and, and trying to make them as simple as possible without losing the technicality but the danger is when you're writing 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 just write just write don't conflate the editing and the writing process because if you do you'll just end up editing the same sentence same paragraph over. and that's the biggest danger that's I think that's true that's the biggest danger that I fall into it's just edit just later edit later yeah. and edit, edit weeks later if you want it doesn't matter but also and we've discussed this before everybody has the, has the right time of day or week or whatever to write yeah. and for me it's, it's, and I had it on Sunday morning it's, it's, it's dead quiet it's half seven in the morning that first couple of hours on Sunday morning, bang. Just get up and write. That's the best thing for me. Get up and write for you. For me, it's a writer's trick. Get up and write because you still you haven't actually engaged with the day at that point. In a way, it's sort of times when you're when you have the least connection between your brain and your fil- like you're not filtering it. So it can be when you get up and write. I, I like to write, or I used to like to write when I had the option in the middle of the night at four in the morning my mind isn't working the light's different everything's wrong and so I can just we're animals ultimately and animals respond to their environment and and we're particularly light sensitive we're all different as animals we're not the same I I used to be a very I'd be up all night making music and stuff but partly through necessity of work partly through getting older I'm now much more early that's true for me as well I, I would love to be able to go back and have a life where I could write because I mean at university I would uh, during the holidays when I was writing then I would sort of get up at five o'clock in the afternoon and write all night and then I would just be basically working night shifts and that suited me but you can't do that if you've got to get up at six the business slash cultural imperative is to get up I used to be able to get in bed and just sleep ten hours or whatever and over time yeah you can't do that no I can't seven hours is a good night you know which is fine but you just yeah, but you're right. I think the point is the same whether it's in the middle of the night or, or early morning. Or it's to find that time when you're not, you're actually in what you're writing rather than observing what you're writing, and that's the crucial difference. But writing is hard. It's hard thing. Yeah, no, I think it's hard. I mean, it's not the same kind of hard as other kinds of hard work, and I think that writers are often in a kind of awkward position where we don't want to go on about how hard it is because we know it isn't as hard as say working in a coal mine yeah, or, no, 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 you know what I mean but at the same time it is actually hard and uh, 
you know, it's it, you can't really talk to people who aren't writers about it as well. That's one of the things I think writing group is good for. It's almost a little bit. There's an element of it that's a little bit like Alcoholics Anonymous. We can talk about this thing that we all do that that you can't talk about with your friends because they won't really get it. Um, and they'll just, it, if you're lucky, they'll try. And if you're unlucky, they'll just think, shut up. You know. I think, I think the key, writing is it's a whole when, when you when you when you're editing more so, writing is a whole myriad it's a myriad of decisions that you make it's a yeah. massive decision making process actually when you're just writing you want to try and get that decision making process out of it and just write and then bring that decision making but it is writing is, is there aren't rules but there are a lot of technical instructions that you're you need to be aware of or, or technical forms that you need to be aware of if, if only so that you can go and bugger them up yeah but you need to know that i mean there are comparisons making music in that i often find that the first 90 95 percent of a track comes in 20 minutes the other five percent take three months because it's the science part of it it's the mastering and the, and, and the, the symbol pattern exactly right and then you start changing sounds and oftentimes it's when you realise the first thing that you put in there you wrote the whole song around is actually rubbish and take it out and it sounds better yeah, yeah. And, that, oh, yeah that, and that is like music yeah, yeah. Although I, mean, I think that what I tend to find is that just the big difference between a novel and a, a pop song is just length, 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 and hours and hours of work. I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of time goes into making a, a track, a three-minute track. You know, mixing it. You know, that can take months and months. Maybe you know, some some songs I've taken years I think to write, but novels. Oh yeah, oh. No, you're, you're absolutely right, mate. I mean, I'm, I'm probably. Between the third and halfway through mine, I would say, with, with some more of it written. But how, how many years have you written? Two and a half years, probably, yeah. I would say. Uh, I, I mean, yes, my know, first novel took six years. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I could get a working draft yeah. in that three months. It would then take a shitload longer to edit it. But that, that's true. The second novel I had, I wrote much quicker because I was unemployed for a bit. And that just meant that I could just work. Yeah, it's weird. I find the more that I write, it does facilitate more writing. Once yeah. you get into it's that initial hurdle. Once you get over that, you can put the once you build up enough momentum, yeah, yeah, exactly. and then it's like a it's like a landslide. Yeah, yeah it does. Then it's suddenly you reach that point, and suddenly you stop going, yeah. and you're off. You go on a lot of kind of travels to very interesting places. So there's the, the sort of business side to you, there's this writing side to you, and then I sort of feel like, and it's not something you talk about very much, but it might be a, you might call it a, maybe a spiritual side to you. Would you? I know that's a painful word to use, but I know that you do meditate. I do. Yeah, recently, yeah, this year, yeah, I did a mindfulness course, which is meditation element, which I found very, very useful. Very useful. Slows the world down. Slows approach the world down. I'm a great believer through experience as well in, in the workings of the unconscious, both in a Freudian, Jungian, and a possibly slightly more spiritual way than that. They're not in any sense religious. Um, but yes, I, I mean, I'm. I find, let's put it this way, when I go away, if, I choose, if I'm choosing where we go, where I go, then I don't go to the city, I, don't go, I go as far away from people really as I can. I, I, will, you know, I, love, I like to surfing and cycling as well, going out with yeah, the nowhere. I like a bit of physical activity in what I'm doing, but I would not choose. To me, I don't, if my novel is kind of a, this point about city, lots of ways, I'm not actually a city person, and you're right. There is, and a lot of the music I listen to, people people would probably think that I listen to fairly up, 
upbeat, loud, blah blah music. I don't like listening to the exact opposite. Uh, a lot of it is very Brian knows ambient stuff. Minimalist, not yeah, music for airports, some Philip Glass stuff, even just twinge gentle stuff, not as loud stuff. Yeah, yeah. Boards of Canada, that sort of thing. But yeah, I like that. yeah, I, I do. But you're right, there is. What the word is? I shy away from the spiritual because of the sort of because of the religious crystals and candles and and and, and yes, the slightly religious element to it, I suppose. But you're right in that. I think people people who only know me in a business way, people who only know me from years ago when I used to go clubbing or whatever, would not would only get one would only get twenty five or thirty percent of me. That's not a deliberate thing. So when you're, I guess, there are, there are quite distinct sides to me. That seems to me to, to be the case from what I'm sort of what I've made of you so far in our in, in getting to know you. Some of that to do with some personal stuff that's happened. In it, you know, that, that I, I, after a while, was due to circumstance, we discovered the way that I perceived the world to be was not the way the world actually was, um, because I've created a whole world that didn't really exist. And having that deconstructed was, was probably was the best thing that's ever happened, because it allows you to see beyond what's presented to you. And often what's presented to us, and, and by humans or, 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 or you know, Marketing, the advertising industry, the salesmen, and so on—the the front that people put on, the world puts on—to to, is, is, is nonsense. It's not the way, that, and it's not the way that most people actually are. I think it's. I think we've lost lots of that in the modern world. So that, that we, we we care about stuff and things too much. And so you like to go away to places where you can't see the things. I love the fact in Costa Rica. Yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't phone anybody even wanted to because I get no phone signal. Exactly. And actually, ironically, and someone said this the other day on telly, I'd never been to Ibiza before, and I went. Best I mean, my Robin, it's a stag to went to Ibiza, it was only about five years ago. And I loved Ibiza for the very fact that you've got every walk of life in Ibiza. From the, the you know, stunningly beautiful Brazilians and Portuguese and Spanish and to, to 65, 70 year old hippies to families to all in one time little place. And nobody gave a shit. All people cared about was whether everybody else was having a good time. They didn't care about who was earning what money or who had what car or who was staying where or who was doing they didn't care about that and I actually felt for that four days I thought I'd hate it I thought it would be an absolute commercial view but it wasn't it really wasn't it was quite again the same old hippie but Bora Bora it was, it was that one a fantastic place because nobody cared about beyond the fact that they were caring yeah, no. Yeah, and I, we, I think we do. We have lost. We, we, we have lost. But the world is a hard place at the moment, particularly. Yeah, well, yeah. it's a very difficult place to be. And, and, and I'm, I'm reasonably lucky. You know, I've got, I've got a good job and enough money and so on. But it's still a hard place to be. I fully agree with you. We can cut this question, but what was the personal? Oh, no, no, that's fine. It would be about 12 years ago. So where are we now? Uh, 10, 11, 12, yeah, it would be 11, 12 years ago. I was suffering from quite severe clinical depression. But I, didn't know, I didn't know that at the time. It was quite a slow process. Every, the irony bit, the irony was that, apart from my parents, even though my mum is a trained psychotherapist as well, my, mom, my friends recognised that something was wrong for a good six, eight months. Before, but they never said anything. And it got to the stage where... 
Because of my mother being a psychotherapist, I knew that world existed. Even though I hated that my mother was a psychotherapist. And I took myself to the doctor. And he said, he did blood tests and all, and all blah, blah. And I was actually fine, A1 and stuff, even though I was taking a shitload of drugs at the time. And then about two weeks later, I went back and he said, fine, blood tests, blah, blah. But he said, like, talk about your life. And he stopped me after about, oh, it's about 30 seconds. He said, well, I stop, 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 stop. You've got clinical depression. You're just absolutely categorized, that's what it is. Put me on antidepressants. Soroxa, they were founded here, the, the terrible ones. I'm familiar with Soroxa, yeah, there were some problems with Yeah, that. problems with, with, with teenage suicide. I've known some people who yeah. have been on it. Horrible. Anyway, I was on them for about three months, and I went into work one day. I was working for publishing companies, editing magazine and website stuff. I walked in one day. I thought it was odd. I woke up in the morning, I thought I can't do this anymore, I just can't do this, physically, mentally, I can't do this. And I went into work and said, that's it, I, I need to go away. And they said, well, you, you've got such a log on your contract. They paid me for, I got two and a half months full pay, and then I went on sick pay. Uh, I sort of got a pay, went to New Zealand, stayed with my grandmother, she gave me some cash. Well, I was very lucky. Yeah, she came, and I just drove around New Zealand, sailing on some eco-cruise thing, and I was fine after that, after, but, I, but even, I, I knew, went to Australia for a bit, came back to the UK and I knew, although I was fine, I wasn't actually fine, so I went back to the doctor, said look I need some help, I can't do this myself, 12 week NHS course, I was lucky again that they had an NHS course, I had one session and she said this is no good for you, with your, this is more for drug dependency or uh, you know, or, she said you, you, you've created a whole world for yourself that doesn't exist and you need to go and have psychotherapy with this bloke. She said, I've never met him, but I heard he's very good. So I went off to see him, like Paul, and he was absolutely brilliant. Best thing I ever did. What world? I mean, what, what, do you, what does that mean? I kept using the phrase, apparently, again, this is all unconscious. The, the, the thing that you don't, when, when you're going a bit mental, when I was quite mental, I didn't know. No, you think it's everybody else. Yeah. You have no notion, idea, you just don't know. Uh, and then she said that in, in the hour that she interviewed me, interviewed chat to me for, was she said you've, you've mentioned the real world about 15 times. A world that you clearly disassociate yourself from, that you're not part of. You have created another personal universe through misconceptions, years of, of misjoining the dot to dot puzzle, and, and you, you need to. That's what's causing the depression because it's internally. When, yes, chemical imbalance is, 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 is arguably part of it, um, but it was, it, it was the depression. Depression I wouldn't wish upon. I wouldn't wish upon anybody. It's, it's virtually impossible to describe. It's hideous. I'd lost so much. I never couldn't sleep. I'd lost so much weight. could work. Um, but it was the best thing to You know, I was incredible. So therapy worked for you. Yeah, I was. I think I was lucky. I, I, I had chosen. I preferred myself. No one else preferred me. Yeah, that's a very, very important. I had a problem to solve. Yeah. So and I knew it needed to be solved because I just couldn't carry on the way that I was. Um, and I was also extremely lucky. And the, the first therapist I was referred to was absolutely brilliant. Was the right therapist. Now, for a lot of people, that isn't the case. But there are massive misconceptions about therapy. Therapy is not about being told what to do. Therapy is about talking and about being given little moments of guidance until you're unconscious becomes your consciousness and, and, and all the things that you haven't been able to think about because your brain's protecting you from your conscious mind's protecting you from it. You, you can then 
working, basically. It was, as I say, just use dot-to-dot thing. It was like, I joined 1, 2, 3, to 15, to 17, to 29, and then probably back to north, but then up to 6. He just gradually rubbed that out. Rubber and eraser. And we just started again. And have you had any more incidents since then? That, the therapy went on for a while. I, 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 I took myself out after about a year. He didn't say anything, and then... About six, eight months later, I took myself back again. It was a gradual process, so probably about four years of being uh, on and off. Because I was quite, I mean, there was a lot of undoing. We couldn't get really to the bottom of, of some things. Uh, and we did eventually. And a lot of it was just, it does start very, very young. You know, you form 89% of your emotional responses in the first three years of your life. Uh, and that's, you can therefore also form a huge amount of misconceptions in that period. Yeah. But through no fault of anybody else, it can be the fault of other people, but in my case, through no fault of anybody else, I just happened to be particularly sensitive to some things, and once I picked up on them, and, and I then created a, a falsehood on, based on those assumptions all the way through, and that had to be stripped away. And don't get me wrong, some of it, first, the first three or four months of it, I couldn't, couldn't go back to work after, after a therapy session, I was knackered, so tired. And also the dreams that you have when your unconscious starts unraveling, you know, I was but I found it not only <laughs> emotionally beneficial <laughs> and cognitively beneficial, but also cognitively fascinating. Just absolutely fascinating the way that you, again, I'll go back to the point, the way that we think we work and the way that we actually work are two different things. I'm always suspicious of when people say, I know what's wrong with me, I know how to sort it out. In some circumstances, yeah, but oftentimes that's somebody who's, you know, who have just told you that they're quite unhappy. And also, you've witnessed them make, repeating the same things over and over and over again. I don't mean what they're saying. But a lot of unhappiness comes through you, you're repeating behaviour that actually makes you unconsciously repeating it that makes you unhappy and that's what yeah, others do. And that's a, and you have to break that cycle and a lot of the time I don't think I don't actually think you are capable of doing it as an individual, I don't actually think you are. I suffered from ME for a year or so, about 18 months. I only got it very mildly. But that again, ME leads into depression. Um, but I was lucky, I was unlucky to get ME, but I was lucky that because I'd had the psychotherapy previously, I could. And they treated cognitively, they treated with CBT, cognitive therapy, ME. I, 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 I had done all the right things, keeping exercising, not just collapsing into bed, but I just kept myself going because, because unconsciously I knew what to do. And you seem to, I mean, these days you seem to have a kind of balance to it. Yeah, I, I think if you're predisposed to doing a lot of thinking, which I am, then you're also predisposed to ending up thinking negative stuff, you know, yeah. you can be, you know. I feel that, yeah. yeah. And, and therefore, I, at some point, it was probably it was inevitable that I was going to fall off a perch, which I did. But, but that has actually given me a much better life because of that. Now, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Uh, but in my case, it was a necessary thing to have happened. And I, 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 I could be a right arsehole as well. Yeah, because I could be, I could be fairly quick-witted and quite aggressive, and, and when you're in a fundamentally self-protectionist frame of mind, you have to be to keep yourself going. 
you would take that out on other people. Yeah, that's sort of my my big battle with my own demons, if you like, um, is to learn to not take it out on other people and to deal with the defects that are within me rather than project them onto the other yeah, people that you're right in contact with. The easiest thing to do in life is it's always everybody else's fault. Yeah. And it is everybody else's fault. No, no. The vast majority of the time, first person you should look at is yourself. And yeah. have the ability to look at it in, in, in as objective a way as possible. Yeah. And that's what therapy allows you to do. I guess so. I mean, I'm very scared of the. I'm very scared of therapy and sceptical of it, I guess. And I think it does depend on the therapist you get and it depends on who you are. Because I've known people have therapy and it's been good for, like, like yourself, and I've known people have therapy and it's really not been good for. I don't know if it's for me. I, 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 that's why I'm doing this show instead. But. <laughs> Absolutely. There are different types of therapy as well. I think... I'll go back to the point I made earlier. I think you have to have a problem that you want to solve. I actually found therapy really quite... I love that once a week ability to just talk to somebody who you, you, you know, they weren't your friend but they understood what you were talking yeah. about and but the dangers after a while I think you could easily fall into the trap of a not doing it the rest of the time and then just doing it that one hour session each week and secondly thinking they are um, oh yeah that's another there's a cliche quote you know apart from death and taxes there are no universals in this life and I don't think therapy is for everybody I don't think it's a universal but I do think that more people should try it if they think they've got problems to solve rather than dismissing it before they try it no that's a that's a very fair point of view on it definitely I, I thoroughly agree Taking it sort of a sideways turn because it's, it's, it's the end of the end sort of end point. Do you have anything that you want to plug? That is the, the question. Uh, yeah, people can have a look at uh, www.stormboy.net. There's music to download on that. Um, there'll be some more than on the VP up shortly, or they can find Stormboy on SoundCloud. Storm like the weather. Boy yeah, like storm, the Yeah, it's a famous uh, Australian uh, jingle story, teenage story. That 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 would be the best place to look. Or just type Josh Armitage into Google because I think if they want to read some technical stuff about the broadcast industry, which I'm sure would be massively fascinating. <laughs> and if you have Happen to be a uh, broadcast industry company. Look at uh, www.jobpr.tv. Fantastic. What's that? What the last one was? www.jumppr.tv. Ah, okay. Jumppr. That's what, almost that's mostly for me when I listen back to this, so I can get the right URL. Fantastic. It's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, Josh. And uh, would you like to say goodbye to the audience? Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for listening, and I hope you will take away from what you want to take away from that. That's, that's what you like. Absolutely. All right. Goodbye. Find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.